Sandy Schreier has a wealth of stories. You might say that she collects them. She has the largest and best private collection of haute couture and high-end designer fashion on earth. It's not meant to be worn. It never was, even though she began her collection as a child. It is to be protected and cherished. The Sandy Schreier collection illustrates some of the most important historic and cultural events over the last 150 years, maybe more. When the best fashion and costume museums on earth need a piece of historic haute couture for an exhibition, more often than not, they reach out to Sandy Schreier. From her childhood in Detroit to an exhibition in her name at the Metropolitan Museum, Sandy has witnessed, found, and saved more fashion history than perhaps any other person. Generously, she spoke with us about how she built her collection, what roles private collections play in the educational and museum spheres of fashion, and she shared some truly incredible personal stories about her life and the life of her collection. She's always looking forward, and how lucky we are to have her working her magic to ensure that the history of what people have worn is preserved and made available to future generations of students and scholars. A quick note, the conversation we had with Sandy was much too interesting to keep to our usual format, and so we'll be sharing it in two parts. Today's episode is the first half, and our next episode will finish the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest installment of Little Red Village. I am Jonathan Joseph with my comrade in arms, Rachel Elspeth Gross, and our phenomenal, amazing, iconic guest today, the incomparable savior of fashion herself, Sandy Schreier, the collector, the designer, the woman of many talents who has taken it upon herself to save tens of thousands of pieces of couture for posterity through her iconic collection. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sandy. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love doing podcasts, although nobody's going to see what I look like. I spent an hour making up this morning because I see what I look like and so do you. But as I have told other people, I like nothing better than telling stories and especially if they include me. Mm -hmm. And uh, my Instagram posts do just that. And as I like to tell people, my Instagram posts are like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, except they're 25 degrees of Sandy Schreier. So my life with celebrities and fashion designers and costume designers and for film and stage, and my whole life has been doing exactly what I'm doing now. And I guess I'm a creature of habit and I can't break this habit. It's not a bad habit to have. It's such a wonderful thing to be surrounded with beauty and craftsmanship and really good work. I think it must be inspiring for everyone. <laughs> well, I consider myself at this stage of my life, I've been thinking that I have so much more to do that I hope that God gives me another hundred years to get it done. But I was just thinking about a trip that I'm making in the very near future. And I haven't been in LA now since before the pandemic it was, I think, spring of 19. And my friends there are very anxious to see me. And my friends are all the people, the living people, not the dead ones, <laughs> that you read about with me on Instagram. I sound like an ad. No, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. I, I grew up in Los Angeles and I have a similar experience. I haven't been able to be back since all of this craziness started. And I totally understand wanting to see your people. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I'm in New York very often. And I love seeing all the designers there. 
and the Broadway people there who, thanks to my cousin, who is a Broadway person himself, he's Dan Moses Schreier, the composer. Oh, wow. And the night before my opening at the Met, he knew that I had written books and have written so many articles about Hollywood designers, but he didn't know if I knew any Broadway designers. So he invited them all to a cocktail party in my wow. honor. And I got to meet all these famous people. And this is a preview of coming attractions. When I finished doing the Hollywood film designers, that's my next Instagram project. I'm going to talk about the stage designers oh, that's and so all these fields. As Edith Head, who was a good friend of mine, used to say, when I would say to her, Edith, why don't you get a clothing line? You'll make a fortune because everybody knows who you are. And she said, Sandy, I keep telling you over and over again, I do not design for real people. Mm -hmm. I design for characters in a screenplay. She said, it's not like apples and oranges, Sandy, dear. It's like apples and giraffes. So <laughs> there we're going on to the whatever you want to say, either the apples or the giraffes are my next project. I love that. I think that speaks to a large reason why we do this podcast, this bringing to light the many facets of what fashion means, whether it's for stage, film, personal wear. And I think that's one of the strengths of your collection and your oeuvre, if you will, because you've been so adept at really having a big tent philosophy on what compromises fashion. And over your career, I just had so many different jobs beyond collecting and, and, and designing. And I would love to know in your view, what makes a collector? What makes a collection? Oh, it's easy. Passion. I think that that sums up what a collector is. I don't know. You guys are so young. I don't know if you heard of somebody by the name of Muriel Callis Newman. She was from Chicago and she was like, one of the grand dames of Chicago. And I was very fortunate to know not only Muriel, but also Hope McCormick, who was the grand dame of Chicago, the McCormick family. And they were both enormous, enormous collectors. And that's what we had in common. And I said to Muriel, who, by the way, passed away many years ago, she was quite a bit older than I am. And I said to her, Muriel, when did you stop collecting or have you stopped collecting? And she said, oh, dear, I stopped ages ago. And I said, well, why? And she said, well, when you get to an age that you know it's time to stop, you'll know it. It doesn't have to come knocking at your door and telling you that. You'll know that that's the end of the collection. Well, Muriel was wrong. I am going to be collecting coffins when I die. <laughs> and as I've said to everybody, when I go, I'm taking it all with me. Of course, except the pieces, the really great pieces that I've given to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and other museums that in the future will be lucky enough to take care of some of my children while I'm away at day camp which is going to be longer than day camp. <laughs> <laughs> We've got such incredible pieces. And I mean, 
it's almost staggering to think about the quantity and not just the amount of individual items, but the amount of shows that you've contributed to globally, the amount of educational opportunities and the preservation, the conservation, it, it's kind of staggering. When you look Rachel, at all this, excuse me, it's staggering to me as well. <laughs> and believe me, it was staggering to my husband as well. He must be a good egg because <laughs> I can't. And he was he was really wonderful. He's passed away now. And we started going together when we were 13 years old. Oh, my. And by that time, I already had hundreds and hundreds of pieces of couture. And I don't know if you know or have read about how the collection began. A little, yeah. And my dad was from New York, and he was the protege of David Nemiroff, who owned Russex, and he was the father of Deanne Arbus. And Russex was the she-she, great, wonderful store in New York, where all the Gross Point Michigan women and very famous and wealthy socialites from all over came to shop. And Dan was going to college part-time and working at Russex in the mailroom. And my dad told me that when Mr. Nemiroff saw him in the mailroom one day, he said, young man, come to my office. My dad thought he was going to be fired and said, what are you doing in the mailroom? And my father explained to him that his parents had both passed away and he was the youngest and he needed money in order to stay in college at NYU, I guess. So Mr. Nemiroff said, I have a great idea. You're a very, very handsome man. And I'm going to teach you how to make fur coats. And if you would like me to. And then all the women that come to buy one fur coat, just to be around you more often, they're going to buy many fur coats. And that's how his (laughs) career started. And when Russick's opened his branch store in Detroit, my dad was sent to head the fur department. And he married my mother, who was a Detroiter. And that's where I come in. And when my mother gave birth to my baby sister, who was two and a half years younger than me, there was no preschool in those days. And daddy took me to work with him, thinking, well, that may last about maybe one or two days. And it lasted from the time I was two and a half until five years old. Wow! So for two and a half years, I went with daddy to work every day, five days a week. And for the first time in my life, I saw fashion magazines, which I had never seen at home. And my mother was a sports person and not really a fashionista. And I loved looking at the beautiful hats and the furs, of course, and the, and the jewelry and the couture gowns blew me away. But best of all, when I walked into those dressing rooms and saw copies of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar magazine. I spent the whole day engrossed in the pictures. Of course, I couldn't read, but the pictures in these magazines and Daddy's clientele were the Chryslers and the Dodges and the Fords. And when all these women came in, Daddy told me they were fascinated with me for two reasons. Number one, I was like a Shirley Temple lookalike and had very curly hair, which I still do. And besides that, what little girl at the age of two, three, four years old is sitting there quietly, not saying a word, but looking at pictures in fashion magazines? 
So they started sending me gifts of their couture. Most of it was either worn once or never been worn. And they didn't know what else to do with it. So there were no vintage stores in those days. So they sent me gifts thinking I would play dress up, but I never, ever did. And I don't know why, but I fought with my parents about that constantly. Because every Halloween, mom wanted to cut apart the couture gowns and make like three of them because I, by that time, had two younger sisters. And so she, and there were no store-bought costumes, and she thought, this is great. I have all this fabric here, and I'm just going to make these costumes. And I would kick my feet and scream and yell. And I won the battle, and the, the couture gowns are still in one piece. Good so, for you. That's amazing. That's, like- that's how it all began. And so by the time Sherwin and I got married as teenagers, I had closets full of couture gowns, and most of them, by the way, were in boxes, and the boxes were the original boxes from houses like Scaparelli, Mamboucher, Poiret, and Patou, and all these women shopped in Paris, and after the war, they start buying American because it was no longer fashionable to buy any European fashion. And that's when big names like Morel and Claire McCarroll got to be household words. Before that, Americans only knew these names from fashion magazines. So my collection goes back, starts with Charles Frederick Worth in about the 1880s and goes up through the present time. And that's the story of how it began. It got to be what was a hobby turned out to be a profession. Because at a certain point in time, my husband said, we were very young when we got married and we had four babies by the time we were 25 years old. I like collecting kids too, obviously. (laughs) So, But he said, why don't you think of turning this into a profession and doing something like speaking engagements? or writing articles or books, and that's how it began. Nowadays, there are courses in fashion history. In my day, there were no such courses, no such classes. And as a matter of fact, my dad, after he left Russex, which was in 1946, after the war, he opened a couture salon on Woodward Avenue in Detroit, which was one block away from the Detroit Institute of Arts Mm. and from the main branch of the Detroit Public Library. And I would beg my dad to take me during lunch hour to the main branch of the library because the branch libraries in our neighborhood had no books about fashion. None were being written at that time. And I went to the main library and the librarian said, the only thing we can show you, dear, his books on arms and armor. There was nothing else to show me. And so it was very frustrating for me. And I spent a lot of time that probably because of there being classes and schools and so many books and the internet now, I mean, what took me a lifetime to learn, I think a student today could probably get that all within a short, a year or two. I'm assuming, I'm not positive. 
but you guys are young, so tell me how you did it. Oh, I mean, it's a mix of traditional educational experiences and just, like you said, passion, the desire to know as much as you can. Jonathan and I became friends when we realized we call ourselves fashion nerds. <laughs> it's not just about wanting a pretty outfit. It's about the connections between what people wear and all of human history. It's all connected. Yeah, I came to fashion actually as a result of my cerebral palsy because I started looking for socks that would cover my AFO leg braces. And my mom and I just, that opened up the rabbit hole for color matching, pattern matching, and I just discovered my obsession with color. I know I'm in a gray t-shirt right now, but both as an abstract painter and just in my personal closet, I love color. I'm a very bold, colorful person. And so color was my entree into fashion and then art history. I was always an art history buff. And so insatiable reading, whether it was Vogue, Harper's, I was definitely that kid. And Grade school, middle school, high school, always had a copy of a fashion magazine, was always trying to like talk to people about fashion. And so between that and just osmosis and trying to surround myself with other fashion nerds and perpetually find my tribe, that, that's really how it happened. And then I discovered fashion theory and Roland Barthes and things like that in high school and got into the more deep aspects of it. And it just grew from there. And it all started, as you said, with passion. I think passion is the genesis of so many of This goes for both of you. Obviously, you're the intellectual, if I may say that. You're mm -hmm. the intellectual part of fashion, and I'm the collector part of fashion. And people are surprised that I know the things that I know about fashion because I didn't have the formal schooling, quote unquote. But you, on the other hand, had the formal schooling. But my question for you is, did you ever get the collector's bug? How much did the two of you collect? Oh, I have shoes. <laughs> I, have shoes. I, I have I have a fair amount of vintage Dior hats. I've always been a hat fan, despite not necessarily loving to wear them myself all the time. Now, as I hit my 30s, I found that hats fit me better. So I have started wearing more of them. But the collector bug for me started with hats because they were so easy to find in my area. I grew up in Connecticut. And so the small antique shops, the vintage stores, people are always getting rid of hats, I noticed, whether it's because store them or or anything like that i didn't know but i started my collecting particularly with hats and it's who's been sort of an accessory person okay so, so what about here's here's the important thing that i'm getting at so what do you two have for my collection oh <laughs> <laughs> no this is great this is entrepreneurial this is wonderful <laughs> i'll have to oh. sift through and see I, I wonder what i have that meets meets the I mark mean, did but... either one of you or i hope see my collection at the Met? I was not in yes. New York at the time. I mean, I've definitely memorized the website page. There's a beautiful article and video on the Met's website about the whole yeah. thing. And I know every time that I'm looking at pictures online to check against <laughs> that particular post, because you've got so much stuff that maybe isn't it doesn't come across necessarily as a private collection unless you scroll down and you read what's a promised gift or it's lent by. It's really, really neat. It's really, you know, it was, I thought the exhibition was really beautiful. It was really it was. wonderful. The designers of the exhibition who were Nathan Crawley and Shane Valentino, they did China Through the Looking Glass, which is my favorite exhibition at the Met. And a few months, well, about six months before the exhibition, opened, they did a walkthrough with me, Shane did, of a PowerPoint presentation. 
And when he finished, I started to cry and he thought I was overwhelmed with the beauty. And I said, I'm not overwhelmed with the beauty. I hate it. I said, I said, I expected it to look like China through the looking glass. I wanted it to be that colorful because like you, Jonathan, color is my middle name. But I'm seeing that you're wearing a charcoal gray T-shirt. And I'm wearing tons of color, and I'm going to stand up so you can see. I'm wearing a rainbow-colored sweater with all kinds of wild colors like chartreuse and fuchsia with a matching necklace. So color is my middle name. And I said to Shane, the only white in my life is toilet paper. I have to show you this. And as you know, the exhibition was very incredible. And the space was so phenomenal, but it was all white. And both the designers said to me that my pieces were so colorful and so strong that if they would have had color behind them, it would have taken away from their beauty and their impact. And so I bought that. I accepted that. (laughs) But walking through the galleries and the exhibition was open longer than any other costume exhibition, even though it closed in March when the museum closed, when the world closed down because Mm -hmm. of COVID. It had already run for almost four months. And then when the museum opened in the summer, it reopened with my exhibition, which ran for another, I believe, almost two months. So it ran for approximately six months, but I was there a great deal of time between November and March. And people that walked through the galleries, I would come up to them or they would approach me and say, I've seen every costume exhibition here, and this by far is my favorite. And I was in shock because I said, oh, you couldn't have seen Manus and Machina. You couldn't have seen McQueen. You couldn't have seen, and I named all my favorites. And they said, yeah, we saw every one of them. And we still think yours was the favorite. And I said, well, why? And they all said one word. And the word was, your exhibition is relatable. I still don't Mm -hmm. get that exactly. Maybe you have a clue of what they meant. But the Met sent the BBC to interview me and to do it. There was a TV show about the Met and they wanted to include an interview with me at my home. And they were here for quite a long time. And when they went to leave, they said, you know, Sandy, we've seen every costume show at the Met Mm -hmm. and we loved yours. We thought it was absolutely incredible and that it was perfect. And this is what they said when they were walking out. They said, but now we realize that it wasn't perfect at all. What it was missing was you and your stories. Mm. And that's something that I really felt that it was really too bad because the stories, each one of the pieces belonged to a very, very famous person. And the only two that were pointed out, there was a couple of things that belonged to Elizabeth Park Firestone And it said the provenance of Mrs. Firestone, but not why and how I got Mm -hmm. to Mrs. Firestone or how she got to me. And Twiggy's dress, the famous one from the Richard Avedon picture of her. And the stories of those dresses and 
every single dress that belonged to a famous movie star or socialite or a stage screen star, whatever, are so mind-boggling. I remember one dress from your collection that I saw, which was this floral pecan gown with orange flowers on it. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking by it. That floral pattern lives rent-free in my head (laughs) to this day in crystalline detail. And I wish I were more adept at illustration because I would try to create it from memory. You know what what that is? That's the famous poppy dress. Yes. And that was done because of the famous poem that was written during the war called Poppies in the Field. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the name of the man who wrote it, but he was in the army and he saw all his buddies be killed and they fell. And in between the crosses on their graves, that's where the poppies were growing in the springtime. And he wrote that famous poem. Yeah, John McRae. And when I look at that dress, that's all I can think about is the fallen soldiers of World War One that he wrote it about. And so that's really interesting because you know what everybody's favorite dress was in the exhibition? Which Which one? one? It was the egg suit by Christian Francis Roth. It was a cool piece. Yeah. I can see why. And children loved that. I knew that kids would love it. But I had no idea that adults also thought that was the greatest. I mean, I thought that was strange. But anyway, I want to tell you the story about the Twiggy dress. Yes, please. Oh, yes. Well, actually, Twiggy came to America And then she wound up staying and moving to Los Angeles. And she found out where I was, and that's how I got the dress. But I always gave credit where credit was due. And she told me a man by the name of Roberto Rojas designed the dress. And he was a Hispanic designer who came to America. And he was designing out of his studio in New York. And actually... Shortly after my husband passed away, I went down to Florida. And as I walked in the door of my apartment in Florida, my landline was ringing. I had one of those at that time. And I picked it up and it was Roberto Rojas calling. He had looked me up on the internet and the only phone number that they had was a phone number of a landline that my husband and I never, ever used. And we were about to take out. And it was Roberto Rojas calling and saying, I see that you're in Florida and I'd like to meet you. I've retired and I live in Fort Lauderdale. And so he told me the story of the Twiggy dress, which is mind boggling. And the story goes like this. He was a good friend of Angela Lansbury and she was opening in Mame on Broadway. And she invited him to the after party after opening night. And she said, of course, you could bring a date. And so his dear friend was Mia Farrow's sister, Prudence Farrow, her kid's sister, who at that time looked exactly like a younger version of Mia. And so, except Mia always was interested in clothes and fashion, and Prudence had no interest whatsoever. And Prudence said, of course, I'll go with you, but you have to make me a dress. So he made her this metal mesh dress. He sent to Whiting and Davis, 
and he orders strips of gold and silver metal mesh. And he and his mother sat up all night sewing the strips together and making an ankle-length gown because this was the 60s. And in the 60s, a gown wasn't a floor-length gown. And it didn't have a train, but it was above the ankle. And so she wore it. million pictures were taken of the two of them. And the next morning, their picture appeared in the newspaper. And underneath the caption read, Mia Farrow and Mystery Man. Well, it was Prudence Farrow and Roberto Rojas, actually. (laughs) Two days later, Diana Freeland was working on a project. And her project was she was bringing a young new model by the name of Twiggy from London to America to be shot by Richard Avedon for Vogue magazine. And she was going out of her mind trying to find just the right thing for Twiggy to wear. And she called in Polly Mellon, her assistant, and said to her, I just saw a picture in this morning's paper of Mia Farrell wearing a perfect gown for Twiggy to wear. Would you get that gown from Mia? And Polly knew Roberto, and she knew Prudence and said that was a mistake. That is Prudence Farrell. I'll call her immediately. So she called, and she wound up getting to Roberto. And long story short, because I tend to make long stories longer. You're in good company. That morning at Avedon Studio, Roberto Rojas came with his bag of tricks, including the gown. And so he walked in, and Twiggy was very overwhelmed. There was Diana Breland, there was Richard Avedon, there was Polly Mellon, there was Roberto Rojas, and a staff of millions. And she was first time in America. She's very shy. She never looked anybody in the eye. And Richard Avedon shot and shot and shot. And after a couple of hours, he came over and supposedly said to Roberto, as Roberto told me, this girl is never going to make it as a big model. She just doesn't have it. She doesn't know how to move. She doesn't know anything. And that dress looks awful on her. And Roberto said, will you give me five minutes? And this, so the story goes, he took out his little trusty scissors and he cut off the whole bottom of the dress and made it into the micro mini that it was in the final photograph. And also Avedon mentioned that he wasn't crazy about her hair. Even though it was short, it wasn't stylish. It didn't have any movement at all. And Roberto said in a former life, he had been a hairdresser. So he convinced Twiggy to trim her hair, which he did. And the rest is history. And there you go. And so so the story is really great. The only thing that they had at the Met, which I really was glad that they did, is they had the original magazine and they had it open to the page with the picture. And then Roberto said decades later, at the end of Avedon's life, he and Roberto bumped into each other and Avedon said, that was the best fashion photograph that I ever took. Oh my. Wow. That's like the turnaround from one. Talk about 180. That's really neat. One more important 
story that I really love. There were quite a few Adrian dresses from my collection in the exhibition. And I didn't meet Adrian because he passed away very early at a young age, sadly enough. But his widow, Janet Gaynor, and I spoke often and I was invited to have dinner with her at her house in LA, which was really a lot of fun. And she told me all these incredible stories about Adrian and how wonderful he was. But the Adrian dress story, the fringed cognac color crepe dress that's there also has Mm -hmm. a matching cape. And actually, Stanley Marcus, the owners of Neiman Marcus in late 1943, called his good friend Adrian on the phone and said, I'm going to do an auction for the war effort. Would you design a killer dress that people will pay a lot of money for so we can give it to the Red Cross? And Adrian did that. And the dress went for $119,000. And that was in 1944. And the next morning, and and it sold to Eddie Albert. Do you remember who Eddie Albert was? No, I don't know that name. Eddie Albert was a very famous movie star. He was the sidekick of Gregory Peck in the movie Roman Holiday, where Gregory Peck and, and the photographer who is Eddie Albert is running around taking pictures of Audrey Hepburn. And then in later years, he appeared at Green Acres on TV with Ava Gabor. Did you ever see Green Acres? Oh, I used to love Green Acres as a kid. So Eddie Albert was married to a movie star also who gave up her career when she got married to him. And her name was Margot Albert. And she was on the best dress list. She was one of Hollywood's most stylish women. And he bought that dress for $119,000 in the early 40s for his wife, Margot. The next morning, the Dallas Morning News had a full-page ad that said, and I have the ad, and it says, congratulations to Neiman Marcus, Stanley Marcus, Adrian, and Eddie Albert on the million-dollar dress. And they're the ones that gave it the title. And sadly enough, Margot died at a young age. And Eddie Albert had seen articles about me in the newspaper. I think called the Met and found out where to get in touch with me. Or actually, I used to, I appeared every Sunday night on AMC with George Clooney's father, Nick Clooney. And he called AMC to find out where to get a hold of me. And he sent me the dress for my collection. And so you see, there's just two stories out of the hundred and some pieces that were in the exhibition. And every one of them has a fabulous story. Let's open today's footnotes with Gilbert Adrian, the designer responsible for dressing some of the most iconic film stars in history. Starting his career around 1927-28, Adrian was known for one thing. Glamour! So much glamour. His sharp shoulders and evening wear set the tone for epic movies like Matahari, The Great Zigfield, and The Women. My favorite movie, actually. Well, it's tied with Anti-Man, but that's another story. It's important to note that Adrian's work during the war years included the so-called million-dollar dress mentioned by Sandy Schreier in the interview, and that it was technically profound for its clever conservative use of fabric to combat wartime rationing. His impact on global fashion through films like The Women and even Parisian firms 
copying his work, which was a reversal of business as usual. Still today, designers like Jeremy Scott for Fall Winter 21 Moschino draw direct inspiration from the famed Technicolor fashion show of Adrian's work that's featured in the middle of the otherwise black and white movie. You can hear more about Gilbert Adrian on the Little Red Fashion blog. After Sandy's amazing story about the epic Twiggy photograph by Richard Avedon, it would be a waste not to share a quick footnote on the icon herself. Some of you might only know her as a former judge on America's Next Top Model, but she was there because her face defined what was known as the youthquake in the 60s in the United Kingdom. With her short hair, big eyes, and waifish appearance, she was something altogether new for the British and the larger fashion world of the swinging 60s. Learn more about Twiggy, including where her name and signature hairstyle come from, on our blog. We briefly mentioned my favorite dress from Sandy's exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum, a chiffon pacan gown covered in the most gorgeous poppies, meant to pay homage to the men who fell in Flanders Field. But what is Flanders Field? If you've ever seen English politicians or even guests on Graham Norton's show sometimes, you'll see a poppy pinned to their lapel. It is because of Flanders Field, a staging ground for many battles on the Western Front in the First World War where over a million soldiers from over 50 countries died. The tragic field was immortalized in a poem by John McRae called In Flanders Fields, which opens with the line, In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow, thus marking poppies as a symbol of remembrance for these soldiers' sacrifices to this day. To learn more about Flanders Field and read the full poem, head over to the blog. That's all for today, lovely listeners. Thank you so much for listening, and remember to tune in on the 29th of May for part two of our special two-part episode with the amazing Sandy Schreier. And remember, fashion is for everyone.